Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to the latest episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Liz Holland, the CEO of Abel Associates, a 75-plus-year-old family-owned real estate company based in Chicago. Abel's portfolio is diversified, but the core of their business is retail, and that's the headline of our discussion today, where we get to focus on what we think of as the embattled or at least certainly rapidly changing retail real estate business. Liz is also the recent past chairman of ICSC and on the board of Federal Realty Investment Trust and the CEO of a retail real estate market analysis firm that solves, in her words, 20 years of tenant marketing frustration. So we get to chat about Liz's career and the retail real estate business from multiple perspectives. We'll be joined mid-conversation by Greg Maloney, president and CEO of our sponsor JLL's Retail Business in the Americas. Thank you, JLL, for being the sponsor of our podcast series. For more information, go to us.jll.com voices. And thank you for being a listener to Leading Voices. If you're enjoying the series, please refer the podcast on to your friends and feel free to rate us on iTunes. And if you have comments or questions, go to our website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or email me at matt at I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Liz Holland, welcome to Leading Voices. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast and excited about the conversation. We haven't in the podcast series yet actually covered retail, which is one of the hottest, most challenging, interesting topics in the commercial real estate world these days. And you'll have many perspectives on the business, which I'm really looking forward to hear about. And just as background, Liz, this is for our listeners. You're the chief executive officer of Abel Associates. Is that Abel? Abel? Abel. Abel. Okay, I'm sorry. Abel Associates, a 77-year-old privately held real estate investment development and management company with about five and a half million square feet of office and retail. You're the past chair of ICSC. You're a board member of Federal Realty Trust, a shopping center REIT, um, one of my favorite clients, and you're a board member of Vici Properties, a REIT in the experiential and gaming business. And you're also the CEO of Laircake, which is a software company that provides data support for retailers and shopping center owners. So you're a busy person. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I think so. Before I get started, I always start at the beginning in, in our conversations, but any kind of headline overview of the things that you do and what you're looking forward to talking about today? Well, you know, as you started out, Matt, it's such a challenging time in retail real estate because things are transforming so quickly. And certainly there have been big retail disruptors in the past and there will be bigger retail disruptors in the future. So it's been quite exciting for us, both in our real estate business, as well as in our software business to try to anticipate those disruptors, you know, and kind of ride the waves. So that's been, that's been what's been most interesting to us recently. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The Chinese proverb may live in interesting times. It, it's, it's funny because we had a stable period for 20 or 30 years in the way the world worked in retail or going to shopping malls or kind of behaviors in America. And it started changing 10, 20 years ago in fundamental ways. And you thought that what we were used to growing up was the norm for hundreds of years. And it's just n never true. Right. No, there's no question about it. And I think not only the change in how the real estate is used, but the change in the demographic profile of shoppers, the change in how technology makes retail businesses more efficient and supply chain logistics more efficient so that Essentially, every store has already become a showroom for merchandise, and really stores don't have to carry inventory like they used to because people are very used to waiting two days to get it. Absolutely true. So well, we will come back to the retail story. Let's start at the beginning, though, because I'm curious about your personal life growing up and kind of what brought you to this business. Any stories from your youth? And I think this is a family business. So I'll be curious what your relationship was with it, watching it, observing it as a family member, as a as a young person. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, it is a family business, but it certainly was never anticipated that 
or even discuss that I would go into it. It was started by my grandfather and his brother in 1941, you know, syndicating real estate limited partnerships to buy first office buildings in downtown Chicago, then hotels, then hotels and office buildings nationwide. And really in 1948, they got into the shopping center business because Sears was one of their office tenants. Right. And so they, they kind of traveled around the Midwest and wherever Sears needed a store, they built a shopping center. And so kind of the retail disruptor of its day with its catalog for Sears was also, you know, the real estate creator in the late 40s and early 50s of, you know, kind of the beginning of the boom of shopping centers. And so my history growing up in it, you know, I came along sometime later, but it was very much a family business. It was my mother's father's business. So my father was never involved full time. And so, you know, I grew up in it, but then I went to college. I went off to work on Wall Street. I worked at Brown Brothers Harriman in, you know, as a bond portfolio manager. And then I went to law school and I became a bankruptcy attorney and I practiced bankruptcy law in New York for three years at Skadden Arps and then had the opportunity to go to work in Washington, D.C. for the National Bankruptcy Review Commission. And so I did that for two years and we filed our report to Congress and I was all ready to capitalize on the value of my government experience because I think I took about a 75% pay cut to go to work for the government. Uh-huh. And and when I was going back, my phone rang and it was my grandfather and he said, I'm 87 and I'm ready to only come into work three days a week and you need to move back to Chicago and take over my business. Uh-huh. And it wasn't a question. Essentially, there was a draft and my number was one. And <laughs> they only needed one person. And so off I went. I thought I was moving back to New York and I moved back to Chicago you know, 20 years ago this November or 21 years ago this November. And so I've been doing that work ever since, you know, and I had the good fortune to work for my grandfather for two years before he died, you know, which was very, very meaningful because we had a very traditional grandfather, granddaughter relationship before then, you know, he loved me without question, but I had to earn his respect. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was very meaningful to become his colleague. That's wonderful. Yeah. And to show up at his house for lunch on Saturday and show him, you know, all the new real estate management software that I had put in place, you know, to a system that was still running like it was 1966. It was running very effectively, but it was still in his office, 1966. And so, you know, he was very excited to see, wow, I can analyze sales that way. This will be a great leasing tool, (laughs) I would say. That's right, Grant. This is going to be an amazing leasing tool. So it was very meaningful. Absolutely. Hey, I I want to talk more about your early days with him, but I'm curious kind of how your early career set you up to have the intellectual interest and some skill sets to run this company. So I'm curious, was that thrown away time prior to joining the business or was that time that made you who you are today kind of talk a little bit more about the law legal experience and brown brothers harriman yeah we can't run by those because they're too interesting um no i think you know any any real meaningful experience in your life be it on the soccer field in high school or in the and the, on the bond trading desk as a 20-year-old is meaningful to who you become in your career. So I would say that, you know, throughout my career, I've always been very fortunate to work for very hard-driving but very fair people. And so it has turned me into somebody who is very open, very honest, very direct. And I think that in and of itself has helped me in my career and certainly helped me you know, go from being on one side of the desk to the other side of the desk. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just been a great set of experiences. You know, when I look back, um, it certainly gives you a thick skin to have started, you know, as a sales assistant on a bond trading desk in 1985. Right. um, In a room of 30 guys who were all traders or salesmen, and I was the only woman. And, you know, to kind of move on from there to Brown Brothers, which was very different. It was a much more certainly genteel place. I was a graduate of the management training program. Uh And so that was great because they essentially give you, you know, they give you an MBA for the first six months, seven months that you work for the bank. And it was certainly an interesting time 
to work for a place like Brown Brothers because it's a private bank. It's owned by a partnership. It's still owned by a partnership. Back then, it was the only entity that straddled the Glass-Steagall line. You know, it had been grandfathered in after the Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was It was very interesting because then the stock market crashed in 1987. And a lot of my friends from college, you know, who had different kinds of jobs, had to find different careers. But I was fortunate that I worked for a place that was very conservative, very conservatively managed. And I think that very much modulated how risky I am in business, which is not very because, you know, you if you don't have a boom, you tend not to have a bust. Right. And so that's kind of been my my approach. Uh-huh. And at both places, the bond trading desk at, and then at Brown Brothers, you're you're doing bond trading. Yes. And when I think of that, I think of the most transactional oriented assertive, I won't say aggressive, not assertive, aggressive part of the the business world. Absolutely. And and then you and then you become a lawyer. So what did you take from that experience in that assertive place? And then why did you become a lawyer after that? Well, you know, you don't you can't take anything personally. So I suppose that it helps uh-huh. you know over time <laughs> that you know uh, and you also tend to think very quickly on your feet. Um, and so you're certainly able to joke around with people in ways that, you know, um, might be seen as unusual with somebody who didn't come out of that, as you call it, milieu of very aggressive, very transactional oriented, um, people, you know, I went to law school because what I realized at Brown brothers in managing fixed income portfolios is that I wanted to, I wanted what I did one day to enhance my ability to do it the next day. So I wanted to be on an upward learning curve of you can learn from your mistakes and you can do better tomorrow than you did today because you learned something today that will help you tomorrow. Uh And when you manage money, you know, and you're looking at a Tellerate screen and you're waiting for non-farm payrolls to come out on a Friday morning because you've set up a barbell portfolio trade in a two-year portfolio and your number's either above or below what you think it's going to come out at, your ability to do that in May doesn't enhance your ability to do it in June. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. you're kind of Mm -hmm. rolling the dice every month. And that didn't feed the part of me that wanted to be an expert, that wanted to find an expertise in a particular area. My father had been a securities lawyer with a very narrow but very highly skilled expertise. And so I always appreciated that about him. You know, he knew a lot about a little. Right. And so that kind of always appealed to my personality. (laughs) It's interesting. I'm thinking of trading and the way that you describe it is it's a reactive job, although creative and fast and the best and the brightest do it, but it is a reacting job. And I know where we're going to get to is real estate, which is very much of a long-term creative job where you are creating your future in a strategic way. It's not a lot of strategy. Exactly. Interesting. Okay, so then you go to law school, and then you come out, and so some law firm, I forget what you said before, Skadden Arps, yeah. government work. I went to work at Skadden, and that was great. It was amazing. I mean, I, I know that I'm in an exclusive club saying that I loved being a first-year associate at a big New York law firm, Yeah. but I really loved it. And it was really looking back because the people that I got to work with, and I appreciate that you work just about 18 hours a day every day, um, were just fantastic. And to this day, if I could pick my Groundhog Day and the day that would repeat forever, it would be the days that I had as a junior associate at Skadden. Mm. I'm trying to think of the difference between your Groundhog Day at Skadden and your Groundhog Day at Brown Brothers, two exclusive clubs, <laughs> but you'd pick Skadden. I would pick I would pick Skadden just because the people I worked with were amazing. And I mean, we can go out to lunch even today, and now you're going back close to 30 years ago, and we are <laughs> laughing at the same jokes, the same stories, the same things that we experienced then, and we it still makes us laugh now. That's pretty unique. I love it. I love it. Um, and so then talk about government work, but then why, when the call came from your grandfather, because we're going to lead up to that, that being the, 
the, the big moments that we care about. Yeah, you know, well, you know, I got to work for um, a congressional commission, which was charged with writing a report recommending changes to the bankruptcy code. I had the privilege of, you know, working with then Professor Warren, now Senator Warren, who is the reporter to the commission. Uh-huh. Um, I worked with amazing commissioners who were on the commission, you know, federal judges and senior statesmen and, you know, lots of very skilled people. And then nationwide, through our working group system, I had contact and worked with the best and the brightest in the field for two years, mm-hmm. coming up with ideas, writing memos, making recommendations, drafting proposed legislative language to go into our report. It was fabulous. It was great experience. Mm-hmm. I, I love politics and try to stay away from it in these conversations, but I'm curious if a Senate commission or congressional commission at that point in time was a collaborative effort or was every moment on the commission political as it is today? Well, you know, I mean, there was certainly some politics involved, but, you know, I can tell you that for, I'll give you a perfect example. One of the most controversial Uh recommendations that I had to write was the elimination of the place of incorporation as a as a valid bankruptcy venue, right? So the reason that all these bankruptcies mm-hmm. are heard in Delaware is because they're Delaware corporations or Delaware subsidiaries of corporations that file in Delaware right. and they get to stay in Delaware. So it was very controversial for us to say, we think this should be eliminated as a valid venue. Mm-hmm. Well, as you might imagine, then Senator Biden from Delaware was very exercised that this would be eliminated because it was a huge business in Delaware, in Wilmington. And so instead of it being loggerheads and fighting and everything else, his staff was lovely to work with. We wrote a recommendation. They wrote a rebuttal. We included their rebuttal in the appendix of our report Mm -hmm. so that when our report was filed, everything that they had filed countering our position was included so that Congress would have kind of both sides of the argument. You know, we really tried to be constructive and to understand that we can agree to disagree and everybody can move forward. Right. It's interesting. You're describing, first of all, a a political issue in a different sense than I had intended because you're describing the self-interest of a state in the debate, not kind of two parties who have to pick opposite, polar opposite sides. Maybe on bankruptcy, there's just they can't work it up to get that excited well, you know, in a negative fashion. About it's that. such a good thing because bankruptcy creates such odd bedfellows. I mean, look at Senator Grassley. Mm-hmm. Even today, he's one of the most right-wing conservative senators mm-hmm. on the Hill. And yet when it comes to Chapter 12 and farmer bankruptcies, he's as liberal as they get. <laughs> <laughs> and all he wants to do is give away the farm so that the the farm lenders can't come in and take it back. So it's a it's an interesting dichotomy sometimes. Absolutely true. Okay, so then you get the call from your grandfather. Yes. And so talk about and you have to say yes. I, I, yeah, there was it was not a question. <laughs> <laughs> so and you hadn't previously had any experience in real estate and and also what you said a few minutes ago is that, you know, you're starting to make changes in technology for the company. So talk about integrating into the company and then also talk maybe if if you can about this was a generation skipping succession. Were you the you were the one drafted, but was that controversy among your family and how do people recover from that conversation and Yeah, you know, it was so. It was. It was not a question, as you say. Um, there was a draft, so I I dropped my negotiations with the law firms that I was hoping to rejoin in New York, mm-hmm. and I moved back to Chicago. There were some overlap between my prior experience and the business at the time. We did have a Montgomery Ward store in our portfolio. They were in bankruptcy, right. so that was something that I could certainly bring to the table right away. But for the most part. It was really taking a business that had run very successfully for a really long time, but hadn't kind of been brought into what was soon to become the 21st century in quite a while. Mm -hmm. And so really what I started doing was bringing in, you know, lease management software, bringing in all kinds of other 
changes, we changed out our leasing agent to be a much more sophisticated leasing operation. You know, all of the things that kind of go into the creation of long-term value in real estate just needed to be refreshed. They were working just fine. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, it just needed to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. And so kind of bringing a new energy to the efficiency was really the first order of business. And, you know, to his credit, because he was 87, my grandfather was always extremely open to every change that I proposed. Mm -hmm. In some respects, much to the consternation of my mother's generation, which kind of kept looking at me saying, don't rock the boat, don't disrupt the goose that's laying the golden egg, what are you doing? Of course. And so the conflict was more between me and the second generation, not so much because I had been chosen, but that was there might have been a little bit of that, mm-hmm. but more because I was instituting changes that they were concerned weren't going to be um, seen as you know long-term value creators. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about what did you learn from your grandfather over those couple years of being able to work with him? And, and that coincides with your learning curve in real estate. So we'll kind of talk about both, but I'm curious just on a personal basis with your grandfather. Well, you know, I mean, he started building shopping centers when there wasn't even any zoning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to say that it was the Wild West in 1948 and then in 1952 and 54 and 56 and 59, you know, when he was really kind of rolling out these centers as Sears's partner was very, you know, very cutting edge. And, um, and so it was interesting to kind of look at these documents that were very developer driven because the developer had a lot of, a lot more control then than they often do now in terms of how, how things work. And sometimes the level of uh, distrust and, not knowing and some of the relation, the interrelationships between the anchor stores and the rest of the shopping center from a developer standpoint was this incredible set of handcuffs that could, were still not unwound, you know, at that point, 45 years later, because they had so locked Mm -hmm. everything up that part of the challenge was if you were going to redevelop an asset, you had to unwind all of these cross controls that made no sense yep. but existed because at the time there was such little trust between the parties because nobody had ever done this before they were kind of working off a very new model mm-hmm. um, what year are we at this point when you joined 97 the end of 97 1997 just to place it in time so that the context makes sense so as you're taking over then your grandfather passes away kind of talk about you know, learning the business, running the business, transitioning the business to what it is today? Well, you know, a lot of it needed to be upgraded. So we changed out anchor stores. Um, In one case, we needed to acquire the anchor store in order to redevelop the site. That took us six years to do. We made an offer in 98. We didn't close until 2004. And then we tore it down. We remediated the brownfield. We got a very lucrative brownfield remediation tax abatement, and we rebuilt, you know, a brand new beautiful shopping center that opened in 2008. But that was a 10-year time horizon from first offer to buy to control the whole site mm-hmm. to when it finally reopened. And there were lots of ups and downs and lots of blind alleys of different plans that we were working on when we thought we'll never own it to we will own it. And so now we can really start over. Um, so it was, you know, what my grandfather taught me in the two years that I got to work for him is that you have to be patient and you have to have the long view. And sometimes the best deal you do is the deal that doesn't get done mm-hmm. and don't chase it. You know, that the right deal will come along at the right time and just be ready and be prepared to do it. And so that kind of, that patience, I think, served him very well. And his, you know, he had a very long career, Um, you know, and so that's kind of where we have stood where, and that's really what I love about the real estate business is that if you love managing the process and you really see it as a multi-year process, um, you know, those phases start to 
create, you know, the end of the first phase creates the beginning of the second phase and so on and so on, because Mm -hmm. it becomes a very logical progression of where the project needs to go. Right. So you mentioned this one project, and it'll be interesting to go back to that. So place this project, be specific about its location, where it is, what it is, because I'll be curious about what your grandfather did, how it became redeveloped and concluded in 2004 and Maybe, and but that doesn't last forever either because the world's changed again since then. So it may segue into our other conversation. Well, you know, I think to his point, so what the shopping center that I'm talking about is in the city of Toledo, Ohio. It's in a great part of Toledo. It was a very strong site. But by the time I arrived, kind of the nexus of retail concentration had moved on. Mm-hmm. You know, it was no longer where Westgate was the name of the shopping center, where Westgate was located, it had moved up to the big enclosed mall, you know, about a mile north and and west of us. And so we didn't control the whole site. It was a half a million square feet of the most functionally obsolete real estate you can imagine. Mm -hmm. It was a big Texas strip. So it was a big L-shaped strip with a three-story anchor department store right at the bend of the L. So it was tucked way in the back. Mm -hmm. And it was just a sea of parking in the front because you could have never put out parcels in the parking lot because of the restrictions on of the the two anchor stores. You know, there was a department store on the shopping center side, but then across the street was a Sears store. Even though they were across the street, they had control over our parking lot on the other side of the street. That kind of goes back to my point about the handcuffs that a lot of these early deals placed on developments that made it very hard to unwind. And so it was a great piece of real estate. The market had passed it by. We were having bigger and bigger challenge leasing it because the spaces were just too deep for current retail prototypes. The stores that we had there did great, but there was a dwindling universe of those kinds of stores. The anchor store ultimately closed, and so we needed to buy it. And that, you know, started in 98, and we ultimately closed with the owner in 2004. And by the time 2004 was there, we were able to really look at the whole site. We had been negotiating with Costco. It was going to be the first Costco in the market. We were able to persuade them that if we clean it and we remediate the brownfield, there was asbestos in that big department store, and there had been a dry cleaner there in the 60s. So there was dry cleaner fluid in the ground, and Costco said, we're with you, we'll do it. And so we were able to, you know, the state of Ohio is a great place if you need to remediate a brownfield because they have amazing laws that as long as you can get through the understandably high hurdles, to qualify for these tax abatements is a great incentive for people to clean up sites voluntarily. We were certainly not at actionable levels, but we were contaminated. I mean, to give you an idea, Matt, we got that done in 2008. By summer of 2009, the shopping center was fully leased and everybody was open and operating. And then through the entire recession, that shopping center was 100% leased with everybody doing great. Because for the single reason that what we had transformed it into met the needs of that market. And so all of a sudden, we went from being a location where the retail had passed us by to all of a sudden becoming a retail destination because the goods and the services and the retailers that we brought back to that location were meeting the needs of the people in the trade area. And so to this day, it's been a a tremendous success. And how much of the meeting the needs of the trade area were, was the pick of the retailers and how much was an entertainment or food destination place to hang out thing? Or is that not relevant in this story? Well, so a lot of it is food. We kind of have one out parcel building that has Starbucks, Berries Bagels, which is a local bagel, great operator. We have Five Guys, we have Chipotle. Um, now we have Jamba Juice, but we also have Massage Envy. So that's experiential, that's food. But then we have a Rite Aid, but then we have Steinmart, we have Fresh Market, we have 
Costco, and then we have a phone store. And now across the street where that Sears store was, you know, now we're redeveloping that side of the street. <laughs> and and what's the synergy across the street? And is that an easy street? Is that a walk street or is that you drive across the street thing? No, Just curious. It's, so it's a six lane of, of street. It's a state road, Central Avenue. Right. You can walk it, but it's not really, it's like a 30 mile, 35 to 40 mile an hour thoroughfare. <laughs> it's, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a small street. Um, as you might imagine, you know, you don't put Costco on a two lane um, street, but there's a lot of acreage over there. We have an office building over there. We've just built two multi-tenant out parcel buildings that have virtually a hundred percent food in them because those are the, you know, those, that's what people are looking for. Again, meeting the needs of the market, mm-hmm. you know, and now we're looking at ways because there's a Sears store that's now dark. There was a elder Beerman store, which was one of the Bonton concepts, which is now dark. And so we're looking at redeveloping that whole site in conjunction with, you know, the adjacent property owners to see what can be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how is Ohio as a market? I'm just curious about kind of a Midwest market versus, or a small, medium town Midwest market versus Chicago market versus coastal markets. Any observations about that? You know, it's um, it's a different market. So it's not going to be the coast. You're not going to get coastal cap rates. But, you know, to kind of what we talked about earlier, when you don't have a boom, you don't have a bust. (laughs) So, you know, I could tell during the downturn, I could tell by my tenant sales when the Jeep plant in Toledo was running three shifts. Right. Because not because the guys and the ladies who work at the Jeep plant are necessarily my shoppers, though some of them are. But it's because their dentists are and their accountants are and their chiropractors are and all of the professionals that feed that kind of an economic engine that flows through the ecosystem, the retail ecosystem very quickly. And so now that the car business is coming back and it certainly has come back, Toledo is also the leader nationwide in solar energy because it was always the glass city. You know, that's where Libby Glass mm-hmm. was based. Right. And it's always been where that skilled labor, First Solar is based in a town just outside of Toledo. So that's, um, you know, it's a very skilled uh, employment base, but it has very niche businesses. And so it's a great market, but you're not going to see mm-hmm. the same cap rates that you do on the coast, but then you're not making that kind of investment in the land and the construction and all of the other things that go into justifying those cap rates on the coast. And, and so talk about your company and the mix of assets you have, like how many of these shopping centers or square footage of shopping centers versus office or other property types and how you balance that out in your business. So about 75% of our square footage is retail, about 25% is office. Um, We are looking to grow the office percentage, particularly in downtown Chicago, and we have chased a number of assets. That's where our business began, and so we would really like to get back into that business. There are a lot of exciting things going on in downtown Chicago that we very much feel like kind of that B office building is a great place to invest and to add value. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've added internally, you know, as you talked about at the beginning, is the introduction of layer cake as a way for retailers and developers to analyze real estate and retail sites differently. You know, it always frustrated me that market studies were so limited in their ability to elucidate the strength of a site or the weaknesses of a site, frankly. And, um, and so we were kind of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And we saw the need for um, a better mousetrap to be able to do this and to do this quickly. And what we didn't anticipate three years ago, when we kind of embarked on this path of creating a better way to analyze real estate was that retail prototypes were going to change so dramatically based on where retailers saw their customers wanting that a customer experience wanting to go. 
You know, a good example would be, you know, the Target Flex format stores where, you know, you don't need 126,000 square feet of a Target Fresh prototype anymore. They'll go into a much wider variety of square footages, which is really exciting. And I think a lot of retailers have kind of followed that path. You know, Barnes & Noble is doing it. Because the prototype is changing, the analysis of the site has to change. And now they're looking at sites that they're not used to looking at. And so we really believe that Layer Cake is a way for retailers as well as developers who own those more unusual kind of sites to be able to sell their product either way. And what is Layer Cake? So you and you have it's a separate company, you have a team, technology people, analytics people. Yep. Who do you sell to and what are what are the layers, although there may be too many layers to describe in a one-minute explanation? No, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So um, it is a whole separate company. It's a whole separate team. We, Kyle McLean is our chief technology officer. He's the person that oversees the creation and the integration of all different kinds of data into Layer Cake. Layer Cake doesn't create its own data. Layer Cake is a platform to feed multiple data sources into a single analytical model. Mm -hmm. That's where the layer part of the cake comes in. For example, in River North in Chicago, you can pull up a layer that shows the traffic on the streets all around the site, and then you can pull up another layer that shows what the new developments are that are going in and around this site by permits that have been pulled, by proposals that have been filed with the city. Mm-hmm. How many residential units, how many condominium units, how many, how much retail square footage, how much office square footage. And so you can see around your site, which, where the development is coming, how many new people are coming. And then you can go to yet another layer and see the credit card data of who shops there, what their gender is, what their income level is, where they live, what their zip code is, and what they actually bought by retail category. So not by singular retailer, but by at least five point of sale uh, terminals. So that alone, you know, what's so exciting to us about kind of the big data introduction into this analysis is any market study from the past was driving down the road looking in the rearview mirror because you were always looking at what happened in the census two years ago, five years ago, nine years ago. Right. And you're always looking at what occurred a while ago, but the predictive analytic component to it, by knowing what people are doing there today, likely predicts what they're going to do there tomorrow mm-hmm. and who's going to be living in that area tomorrow and who's going to be working there and how many more people are going to be concentrated there is, is pretty cool. Do you ever find the data that you're able to access? I'm sure it's never about individuals, but it is about predictive behavior. Is it ever spooky? Not really. You know, it it really doesn't. It doesn't get down to the level of any remote privacy issues. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what's kind of cool about it is you can pick a retailer on Michigan Avenue, for example, and you can right. say. of the shoppers in that store live in the trade area. So only 70% live outside the trade area. And of those 70%, 50% of the 70% live in the Chicago land area. Right. And really only 20% are true tourists. So you might think that you have a high tourist traffic area, high tourist demand But really, only 20% of the shoppers are true tourists. Everybody else either works there and live outside the city or actually lives in the neighborhood and shops there. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing. And then what are they buying? You know, are they buying beauty? Are they buying apparel? Are they, you know, so you, you don't get discrete information like they're buying size six Levi's in black. Of course. But you get, you get, (laughs) you know, some fairly, fairly interesting um, information about their income categories, Mm -hmm. about where they live, what their gender is, what their age is, you know, in ranges, not in exact detail. Right. It's interesting that uh, my sense of the spooky thing is not about a person, right? Because you'll never get that information. But I do have the sense that 
groups of mil- milieus uh, or groups of people have highly predictive habits. And I know I'm, I, my habits would be really obvious to predict or the group like me do the same kind of things. And maybe they, they become even more and more like that. So that, that's kind of interesting. Oh, no, there's no question that shopping is behavior and people are creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody who's ever shopped in a grocery store that's not their usual grocery store and the sense of disorientation that comes over you when you don't know where the lucky charms are because you know that in your grocery store it's in this aisle really drives home the fact that shopping is totally behavior. And as you say, people are creatures of habit. Right. And and then when you changed, when, when you started Lair Cake, which is such a wonderful evocative name for what it is you're doing, you had said we maybe you hadn't quite realized how deeply or quickly changing the prototype was. That makes the timing of this business perfect because then you can observe and predict and react to the prototype as it's changing. Precisely. And different metrics go into different choices in the prototype. Right. And now what we're finding with the retailers that we're working with is the credit card data that we're able to show them around a particular site or in a particular customized trade area polygon will help them merchandise that store better. They have to be picky and choosy about which mer- which lines of merchandise they carry in a store that may be a third the size of their usual store. Of course. And so being able to know what people in that market want to buy based on what they are already buying in the area, is very useful information. And then the chance to have half as much traffic but twice as much sales because it's going to be an efficient store. Yes. You know, and you look at what Amazon is doing now, that they're going to stock these stores with all of the things that are popular on Amazon in that particular trade area. Right. It's brilliant. Well, let's use that as a segue to talk about retail generally and also your leadership with an ICSC and your leadership with an ICSC at this time of change. And so I, we, we all read the headlines, particularly in the Wall Street Journal that just love shopping malls these days, but help think, you know, from the headlines from your standpoint and as a representative of the industry, not just an owner yourself, well, what's going on? How do we make sense of this? Well, you know, I think I think the narrative has changed, you know, more than two, two and a half years ago, when I became chairman of ICSC, the narrative drum that was beating was that retail is dead and Amazon is going to take over the world. And pretty soon we're going to order everything everywhere and nobody's ever going to go into a store again. Yes. And in the last two and a half years, that narrative has changed because of the conduct, not just of the pure play e-commerce players like Amazon, who acquired Whole Foods and is now rolling out Prime membership and rolling out these Amazon Go stores in a very, you know, what they have said is going to be a very aggressive pattern over time. To traditional brick and mortar retailers like Walmart, like Target, like Best Buy, who have made tremendous investment in becoming omni-channel suppliers of goods to their customers when their customers want them, and how they want them delivered. Mm -hmm. And so you've had kind of a convergence into the middle of everybody understanding that most pure play e-commerce sales, if they have any margin, have a razor-thin margin. Even on the scale that Amazon does it, it's still a razor-thin margin. And that if you really want to make money in retail, you need to solve the last mile by getting the customer into your store. I hope that you're all enjoying my conversation with Liz. Now, let's take a moment to hear some insights from Greg Maloney, president and CEO of JLL's America's Retail Business. We continue to hear a lot about how the retail landscape continues to evolve as players and strategies shift. In your mind, what's the next big thing we should be focusing on when it comes to the retail industry? The next thing that we should focus on is really how online retailers and pure play online retailers are going to intermix with the brick and mortar. We're seeing more and more starting to open up stores. They've realized that the best way to get their product to the consumer 
is through a lot of different channels. As well, the brick and mortar are realizing that they have to have this online presence. So as we look forward to the future, the winner of this is the customer because ultimately they will be able to have a lot more choices of how they get their products into their hands. So how does that affect the performance and vacancies and and success of the different segments of retail? Because if you read the headlines again, you think of retail real estate as one industry. We know it's not. We know it's many segments that are massively different between a regional mall and a neighborhood shopping center. That's almost nothing in common. Right. You know, it really depends on where you are and what you are. And so it comes back to location, which has always been the driver of value in real estate. And certainly retail is not immune from that value driver. So I think when you look going forward at the, you know, and there's no question, I mean, it's something of a perfect storm, Matt, because we just have too much retail square footage. So at a time of tremendous transformation in retail business, you also have a glut of retail space. Mm-hmm. And so that space needs to be repurposed. Sometimes it can be entertainment. Sometimes it can be residential. Sometimes it can be hospitality. Sometimes it can be food and beverage. Sometimes it needs to be warehouse. And sometimes it just needs to start over. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look forward at behavior and how technology is going to drive behavior, how demographic change drives behavior, I think the kinds of shopping centers, be they in closed malls or open air, I mean, I tend to think that people focus on the malls just because the papers focus on the malls. And what the editorial staffs of all these papers have said to us is, we focus on malls because it's a four-letter word and shopping centers is too long to put into a headline. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, to give you an idea of the scale of the issue here, there is only a billion square feet of enclosed mall space in the United States. There is a billion square feet of vacant strip center shopping space in the United States. So the idea that the malls are the only challenge going forward is tremendously misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And what, what percentage of the Enclosed malls are obsolete or largely vacant. Maybe that's the same thing. That's, it's hard. I would say probably 30%, but it's a guess. It's really hard to know. Uh-huh. Um, the average occupancy is still 90% over all enclosed properties. Um, you know, that may start to change with between Bonton and Sears and Pennies, and a lot of these big box stores are starting to close stores with greater rapidity. So 90% occupancy includes the walking dead. Sure. Got it. But average occupancy is still 90%. It will change. Some will be replaced. Yep. But then also 30% of that stock might not should be there anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be repurposed. It may be repurposed to better places for neighborhoods because malls are disruptive to neighborhoods at least the old style malls disruptive because you you got to get it's a fortress in the middle of a neighborhood if it's in a neighborhood fortress surrounded by parking right but they tended not to be built in true neighborhoods I mean there is that quality mm-hmm. to it I mean they tended to be on major thoroughfares with big ring roads and lots of land around them but then you also talked about a billion square feet of vacant strip centers what percentage of the strip center business is that and is that is that at that same kind of thirty percent in bad shape role or is that the the difference the difference in the strip center business is that can really become anything that can become a dialysis location much more easily that can become an office that can become a distribution center you know that can become a lot more different things it might not generate the same rent for the owner of that real estate and that's a separate analysis about how quickly that real estate gets repurposed depends on the ownership structure that owns it. Mm-hmm. And and bring those back to your business. And as we think about the portfolio you've had and you've worked since you started with the business, where do your properties, particularly your retail properties, stand in these continuums of questions, issues, and challenges? 
Well, you know, and have you addressed those? We really only, I mean, our strip center business is great. We're very fortunate. We have great locations. We have great tenants. We've always been very, our portfolio has always been very actively managed across the board, be it office or retail. We do have one enclosed mall property, and we were fortunate again that in 2004, we brought Target in as an anchor. That was unusual Mm -hmm. in 2004. And then in 2008, we took about 60,000 square feet of space adjacent to Target because what we found when we added Target was our shopper profile changed. Um, You know, any enclosed regional mall, even the best ones in the country, are at most a monthly needs destination for the people in that trade area. Mm -hmm. And what we found when we added Target was we became a weekly needs destination. We became a place that people went for groceries and they went for socks and they went for all kinds of other stuff that they needed, school supplies. And so we felt like we needed to reinforce that shopper traffic and that shopper experience by taking 60,000 square feet and putting in much more traditional power strip junior anchor boxes. Mm -hmm. So we aggregated a lot of retail space. And we started putting in Ulta and Shoe Carnival and Staples and Ross and a bunch of different tenants that had exterior entrances to the parking lot, but also had interior entrances to the enclosed mall. So from that standpoint, we were lucky. We were a one-level mall. We were easily hybridized. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky that with Target as an anchor and then with Kohl's as an anchor, we were able to attract those kinds of tenants that were traditionally not in a mall format. And so what we found today is more than 50% of our GLA, our enclosed space, is in a power anchor position with an exterior entrance. Mm -hmm. So it's really a hybrid asset. It's no longer a traditional enclosed mall. And so that's, that's been fortunate because we've been able, again, to bring in the kinds of retailers that meet the needs of our trade area in ways that maybe enclosed mall retailers had stopped doing. Absolutely. Interesting. And if you go going back for a moment to ICSC and as a leader in the industry, how does that association and how does the industry respond to the challenges that the industry is facing or the level of change that the industry is facing? And how does an association support its members to be more successful or to help create the new ideas or the research that points to where things are going? Just kind of stabilize the buzz around that kind of those different kinds of investments? Well, you know, I think where ICSE is going is precisely in the right direction, which is to bring in the hospitality, bring in the multifamily, really become, just as shopping centers have become more mixed use, ICSE has started providing a forum for those other uses to have access to shopping center developers and shopping center developers equally to have access to people who do different kinds of development in their space, but understand that sometimes the shopping center real estate is the best real estate that they have to pick for their particular, be it medical office, be it entertainment, be it um, a residential unit, either multifamily and certainly hospitality. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of, that's that's where the industry is going. Yep. And so ICSC simply has to be sure it doesn't need to be out in front, but it needs to support the, you know, the transformation in the business by continuing to provide the networking opportunities mm-hmm. and the forum to do business. I mean, the number one value proposition for anyone who's a member of ICSC is the networking. Right. It's the reason people go to the meetings. It's the reason they're involved as volunteers. It's the ability to get to know other people, you know, and to do business. And so, you know, ICSC does that, you know, quite well. Of course, that that never goes away. The, the part of the question is, how do we see where things are going? Not just to provide the networking opportunities, but either to educate local planners, to allow the right kind of changes so that these centers can evolve in the right directions. 
Yeah, no, certainly um, governmental and municipal outreach has been a big part of ICSD's program for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so continuing that education process, I mean, most places have gotten well over the curve. You know, it's surprising to me now when I learn and, I, you know, we have a shopping center in suburban Chicago and I'm looking at the plan and we're down to two spaces left to lease. And I said, well, gosh, we have all these great generators of traffic for women. Why don't we have a Massage Heights or a Massage Envy here? And I'm told by my leasing person because there's a local ordinance that says that that's a massage parlor and they restrict massage parlors and you need a special use permit and nobody's ever been approved. So I think those kinds Mm -hmm. of instances are very rare now, Mm -hmm. um, but they Mm -hmm. do still exist. You're right. It, it's interesting. We just did a podcast interview with a person who runs an urban tech investment firm and government relations is a huge part of that business because many of the technologies are disruptive and there's not the regulatory framework within which for for through which they can be successful and do their business. And so, you know, think of Uber and Airbnb as the, the headliners of that. Right. But in this changing world, or our public institutions or the structures that exist out there, and zoning could be one of them, do not have the mechanisms to respond to these types of innovations that are demanded by, fair, you know, the kind of use that you just described. Just a perfect example. Oh, I mean, precisely. I mean, in Iowa, they had to change state law to let Dave and Buster's go there. Wow. Because there was a law that said that if you award a prize in excess of $100, you're a gaming location and you need a gaming license and you need to be licensed under state law (laughs) as a gaming establishment. And there we restrict those to certain spots. And unless you're an Indian, you know, with a reservation and a license, you're restricted. And so that kind of stuff is very rare. That's crazy. So one of the companies that does the best at the things that you're describing of combining different uses as federal real estate investment trust and you're a board member. And so I'm curious, any, any headlines from your work with federal and how they approach these types of issues? Well, you know that, I mean, it's been such a privilege, you know, to be an ant at Don Woods picnic because uh-huh. you're right. They do it better than anybody. And even at the federal level, it is it looks way easier than it is. Mm-hmm. They are all unbelievably good at what they do. And so it's just very exciting to see it at the cutting edge. I certainly don't do it day to day at the cutting edge, mm-hmm. but there's no question that they do and that they they were fortunate to see the progression and see the future before any of us. And so it's been, uh, it's been very exciting to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what is... VICI, what 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 company? What do, what do they do? So Vici uh-huh. is um, as in Vini Vidi Vici is a company that was created. Actually, our one year anniversary is this Saturday. Happy birthday, Vici, on October sixth. It was created out of the Caesars bankruptcy case uh-huh. as a standalone independent real estate investment trust that held, at least initially. Um, some of the assets of Caesars Entertainment that were spun off to the secured creditors in the bankruptcy. It includes Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, since acquired other assets in partnership with Caesars, and we are looking at other opportunities with other operators. And it's, um, we are the only independent operator in our class, and so it's been a great experience. It's been very exciting. We went public you know, less than 120 days after we were created. Um, so that was very exciting. And it's just been, you know, a great ride. There's an incredible team that runs it. So I'm privileged to be a board member and, you know, cheer them on from the sidelines. But it's it's a very interesting business because, as you saw recently from CBL's announcement, that they're, they're going to be adding casinos mm-hmm. to some of their shopping malls in the state of Pennsylvania the convergence of these big entertainment venues with shopping is something that I think we're going to see a lot more of. It's not just going to be reserved for Las Vegas. And so I think that'll be very exciting Mm -hmm. because the regional gaming assets, when you look at casinos and certainly we see them around Chicago, 
you know, they tend not to be in very compelling locations by design, right? right. The riverboat model kind of forced that into a non-compelling location. And I think now that governmental and state, you know, legislators and rulemakers have realized that the more compelling the location, the better everything does. You know, mm-hmm. the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're starting to let them happen in other places that reinforce the retail, that reinforce the hospitality, that reinforce the food and beverage, and certainly that reinforce the gaming entertainment component of the project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would think that those companies might have really learned how to squeeze the sponge at every aspect of the synergistic businesses that are in their locations. And there's good lessons for all that we've been discussing on the retail side from, if not the same moves, the same discipline. Oh, no, you're exactly right. I mean, the forum shops at Caesars Las Vegas is a perfect example. It is one of the most productive and closed shopping malls in the country, and it's anchored by a casino. Mm -hmm. Question for you as as we wrap up the conversation. Um, We've talked a lot about different aspects of real estate. What what in real estate makes your heart sing? What when you build something, design something, make something happen in the real estate business? What what do you love? You know, truly what I love is when you open a shopping center and you go there and you see every member of that community having access, having their needs met, finding what they need. And so if you're in a very diverse community and our shopping centers tend to be in diverse communities, when you can see the diversity in the community community reflected in the diversity of your shopper, Mm -hmm. that makes me so excited because it makes me feel like you have improved a place for everybody, not just for some people at, at any part of the spectrum, but that for everybody who lives there, you have provided a clean, safe, welcoming experience and you have provided them with the retailers or the entertainment venue or whatever it is that you have done that serves their needs. Mm-hmm. I th- you know, I, I live in the city of Chicago. I'm an urban dweller. You know, I like the idea that kind of all for one and one for all. Um, and so the idea that you have done something for everybody. You have, you know, it's kind of what your grandmother told you, you know, always leave something better than you found it. Right. That, that's the piece of it that makes me the happiest. It's funny. Uh, a friend of mine, kind of Steve Tobin is a, is a artist and he does huge monumental sculptures. And I've been looking at them for years and being around them. And these could be 50 foot high metal sculptures. And, they're gorgeous, and they're gorgeous in pastoral settings. And yesterday he sent me a video of an installation of one of his sculptures and, um, in China. And what was so interesting is there were a hundred kids climbing all over his sculpture, and it gave a total different feel than it did in alone in a pastoral setting. And what you just described about what you can love about real estate is you're creating an environment where people are living their lives and having a blast moment to moment. And you could provide a dead environment for that, or you can provide an alive environment for that. And that in and of itself may describe great real estate. Yeah, you know, that it's it's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely true. And, and Retail may be a more favorable sector for women leaders in the business, and I'm totally making that up, but real estate traditionally has been a difficult place for women in the business, and retail may be better or worse. Any comments on that and comments on leadership as a woman on boards, ICSC, in your own company, and in the competitive day-to-day market? Well, you know, I think, um, so women make 70% of the purchases made in shopping centers. Mm-hmm. If you include purchasers that purchases that women influence, it's above 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, the retail real estate business is still very much dominated by men. Um, but I think that's changing. And it, you know, certainly my daughters will live in a different world than I did. 
And but you know the thing that gives me encouragement is that today women earn two bachelor's degrees for every one bachelor degree earned by a man. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You would have to go back to 1970, Matt, for the reverse to be true. So I think over time, if the first conductor who punches your ticket is the person who gives you a bachelor's degree, uh-huh. over, over time, the only people eligible, the only people who will be eligible for these positions, who will be moving up through the system, are going to be women. Absolutely true. And so I'm encouraged just that demographically, change will be inevitable. You know, if demographics is destiny, I think the change is coming and it will be inevitable. Fair deal. We see it every day. I have discussions with all of my colleagues and my wife was a senior woman in real estate. And what she grew up in is going to be massively different than my example, what my daughter is going to grow up in in the business. So my my last question is always the same. If you were giving advice to a young person coming into the real estate business and planning a career, uh, what would that be? You know, my, I think it would be the same for any young person going into any position in any career of their choosing. You know, I think the thing that served me the best, no matter which job I had, whether it was as a camp counselor or a bond trader or a attorney or a real estate executive was always be willing to do the job that nobody else wants to do Mm. because nothing stands out for the people who you work for than that. Fair deal. And that, that that would be my advice Mm -hmm. would be, it may be a tougher job. It may be less glamorous. It may be, you know, the, the equivalent of KP duty, but truly nothing makes you stand out better as, as starting out, you know, entry-level employee in any position than that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great advice. Liz, any parting thoughts for our listeners about, in particular, the retail real estate business? Well, you know, I think probably the most exciting thing, kind of change coming, is what the overruling of the Quill decision will mean for online sales. You know, October 1st was the first day in the state of Illinois that if you buy anything online, that seller has to remit sales tax to Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I think as those laws start to get passed in every state in the union, I think that may start to change people's behavior. And so I think that's kind of an interesting change. We lobbied for it for a long time. Finally, the Supreme Court had to get the ball over the goal line. But, um, But I think that's really the big change that's coming in terms of how is shopping behavior going to change as between, uh, you know, a, a mobile omni-channel purchase and a brick-and-mortar purchase. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, that will certainly level the playing field, which is critical. Yes, absolutely. Great. Um, Liz, thank you very much for being in the podcast. Really appreciate it. And uh, we will keep talking. Thank you, Matt. Have a good day. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients, whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 